You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Today is a special episode of the hashtag FemSquire series where I interview incredible women attorneys and business owners about their career evolution and experience as an entrepreneur. My guest today, Sandra Ratna. Sandra is an attorney in Long Island in New York City. She's been practicing 27 years. She practices divorce and family law, residential real estate, and medical malpractice and personal injury. Sandra shares the nuts and bolts of growing a business from a solo practice, literally just herself, to having a team of 11. Hear how she does it, including interviewing, hiring, firing, personnel management, and the book that she credits with changing her firm. Looking for advice how to move the needle on your firm? Keep listening. Here with Sandra Radna, an attorney in Long Island. (laughs) Sorry, I have to say it like that. I'm from Jersey, so I have to say it. I'll try to keep my accent down to a minimum. I don't know if I can, though. (laughs) I love your accent. My family's from Brooklyn, so I'm used to the New York accent. I'm originally from Brooklyn, too. I was going to start out with that, where where you're from, because most of the people I interview are from New Jersey. So I I lived in Brooklyn until I was 12 years old, and then we moved to Long Island, to Long Beach. So you are a New Yorker. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So the first thing I do normally start out with is where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Well, I went to Hofstra. I was going to be a doctor. I was pre-med. I was a biology major until I didn't switch majors. And Well, I actually never switched majors. I graduated as a biology major, but really had a lot of trouble with organic chemistry so after I graduated with my biology degree, which you could basically do nothing with if you're not going to medical school, I went to Adelphi and went to nursing school, which I loved until I got into the hospital and I didn't like the way it smelled. So, <laughs> wow, that was it? That was the thing yeah, that turned you off? That was really the thing that turned me off. And my whole family was, they knew I don't like smells. So <laughs> they never understood the nursing thing. So after I did that, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I started working at the American Diabetes Association, but basically as an administrative assistant. But back then, there were really no computers. They were just typewriters. And I went to the supply closet about three or four times to get white out because I made so many mistakes. But what I did enjoy was the support group that they had for the children who had diabetes, the the teenagers who had diabetes, especially the boys who were embarrassed about having to drink diet soda. And that I really enjoyed. And I was talking to one of my friends, and they said, why don't you take the LSAT and go to law school? And it was just like that. That seemed like a big leap. Yeah. Well, I was always a very good writer. I really enjoyed helping people. And they they said, why don't you take the LSAT and go to law school? Because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew that I was... I was really working as a secretary, and I really didn't enjoy that. Um, And I wasn't good at it because I was a horrible typist. And so I took the LSAT and got in. I think I took it. I know I took it on February 8th. I remember the date. And got my results in April and applied to law school. And the rest, as they say, is history. So what did you think you were going to do with that? What kind of law did you think you would do? I was going to do medical malpractice defense because I had been pre-med and my, I had doctors in my family and I would never sue a doctor. And so my first job out of law school was at a big medical malpractice defense firm. And I did that for about a year and a half. And then my friends started saying to me, I'm buying a house, could you help me? And I said, no, I don't know how to do that. And my friend's parents are getting a divorce, could you help me? And I was like, no, I don't know how to do that. And they said, you know, somebody I know was just in a car accident, can you help me? And I was like, no, don't know how to do that. And I really started to want say, I wanted to start saying yes. So I took the pay cut, started working for a sole practitioner, and he basically taught me everything that I know. I worked with him for about a year and a half, and I wanted to start my own firm, and he let me stay in the office. I was working as his associate in exchange for 20 hours a week of work. So I worked for him for 20 hours a week. That was my rent. And after my 
I think after three months, we settled our first personal injury case, and I used that to get our phones and computers, and I stayed in that office for maybe a year or so, and then went on my own because we started getting too busy with a friend of mine from college. You're moving yeah. really fast through this story. Yeah. I feel like there's so much you might be leaving out. No, <laughs> I think I'm giving a lot of details. <laughs> Uh, so why don't we back up when you left the larger firm and you went to go work for the solo and you were doing a lot of different things. How did you feel about that in terms of not knowing how to do anything? Well, it was okay because he, he was a very laissez-faire type of a boss. So he let me take as many CLEs as I wanted and I, I took them and I had other friends that were attorneys and the person who became my partner was already working for a sole practitioner. So I would call him up and ask him, how do you do this? Or do you have a sample for that? So it, it really, my boss used to say, you learn by doing. So I really did. He kind of just threw me into things and I really took every continuing legal education course I could to learn how to do things. And I really did learn by doing. I, I feel that I became good at what I was doing quicker because he kind of just threw me into the fire and I, I learned how to do these things. And at the live CLEs, the attorneys that were teaching the courses were very helpful. You know, they would let you, they would say, call me or I'll give you samples. So I felt like I, had, I grew a network of people to help pretty quickly. And, um, and that was basically it. So I started doing his practice areas. I did the medical malpractice on the plaintiff's side now. And all that information that I learned from nursing school and being pre-med, and I had also worked at a hospital for a while. I learned how to read medical records, so that helped me immensely in the medical malpractice and personal injury because I could read the medical records myself. And the divorces came about because he did divorces in his practice, which as a young person I thought I, if I ever had my own practice, I would never do a contested divorce. I would only do an uncontested divorce because I could never, you know, get involved in this. And now today, 60% of my practice is contested divorce. That's, that's funny. my niche. How do yeah. you think that happens? I know exactly how it happened. I started my own practice and I only did uncontested divorces, meaning the ones that everyone agrees to everything and we're just doing the paperwork. And I had a woman that came to me for an uncontested divorce. And during that divorce, her husband locked her out of the house and she was sleeping on her front lawn. And her, that uncontested divorce became contested. And I couldn't abandon this client. And it was my whole perspective completely changed. She didn't have anyone else to turn to other than me to help her out of this situation. And when uh, we spoke with the other attorney, he said, well, we're not giving her anything she's asking for. We'll go to trial. And I was like, okay, fine. I did these medical malpractice trials that were very complicated. I figured divorce couldn't be any more complicated than that. And we went all the way to trial and got everything that my client was supposed to get. And because I knew how to do a trial and I was very aware of, of the mechanics of doing a trial, I gained uh, the respect of the judge that I was trying the case in front of. And my, through word of mouth, I started getting other contested divorces. And it became my niche because I, I really liked helping these people. They can come to me for the problem that they had that their friends couldn't really advise them on. Their friends could listen, but yeah. not necessarily help them get through it. And because we weren't intimidated by the threat of trial and we were willing to take these cases to trial, we got very good results for our clients. And so it's really become most of what we do because we really enjoy helping our clients in these impossible situations. I'm not a volume practice, which a lot of matrimonial attorneys are, so I have the time to spend with my clients when we go to court. I'm not running from room to room to room. They feel like they're really getting effective representation, and they feel like they're heard. So, What do you mean when you say you're not a volume practice? A lot of matrimonial attorneys will, have, will go to court, for example, and they'll have three or four cases on. So they'll have the client in one room, they'll be running to another courtroom, they'll you know, they'll be going to a few cases. I have four attorneys in my office. When we go to court, there's just one attorney on each case. If we have more than four cases on that day, then we postpone it to a date so that we can be there with our client. And the reason that our clients like that is that they feel that yeah. 
we really know what's going on in their case. We're, we're there for them physically and, you know, literally and, and emotionally. Do so. you find that a lot of family attorneys or attorneys in general, I guess, depending on what they do, that they don't really know how to do a trial? I wouldn't make a blanket statement about all attorneys because there are some family law attorneys that are amazing and, and do know how to do trials. But the attorneys that are doing that, vol- what I call a volume practice, their goal is to try to get the case settled as quickly as possible. So I don't know if it's so much that they don't know how to do a trial or that they don't want to do a trial. Yeah, it is very time-consuming. It's time-consuming. It, it, it takes a lot of time, maybe away from other cases, is how they might be looking at it. But for us, if it makes sense for our client to go to trial, and sometimes it doesn't, but if it makes sense for our client to go to trial, we're, we're willing to do that for them, and we're not going to compromise to to just get the fast result that might not be the best result for our client. Before you started your own practice, did you know that you always wanted to have your own practice, even when you started out? No. I wanted to work at a big fancy firm, which was what my first job was because it looked so glamorous. And I remember going in for that interview and with the mahogany desks and the walls and the fresh flowers and... I think the firm had 202 attorneys. It was, you know, I loved it. I loved the camaraderie and the personalities of the attorneys. But what I didn't know, which I didn't learn until I was there, like your life is that firm. And I knew that one day I wanted to get married and have children. And that's where the working at my own firm started coming into my mind. I had an aunt who was a psychiatrist and she had her own practice and she always worked her schedule around her children not her children around her schedule and I always thought that that was something that and at the time I I didn't even have a boyfriend (laughs) but I knew that one day I wanted to get married and have children and I liked the idea of maybe being more in control of my schedule than a big firm offered which they were in control of your schedule yes that's true so when did you start thinking I you know at least feeling the itch like I think maybe it's time for me to start doing my own thing when I was working for the sole practitioner, I, I, th- I think I felt that I, could, I would do things differently if it was my firm, and it wasn't my firm. And he allowed me to bring my own cases in, and I felt that I wanted to start making my own decisions on how we were going to handle a, a case or when we were going to do certain things. And he was just so supportive in allowing me to do that that it really helped me. It sounds like a short period of time. I, I really, it was just... I think three years after I was admitted to, two or three years after I was admitted to practice law that I started my own firm. That's really you know, incredible. Which is really a short period of time, but I just... That is. I felt that I was ready, and because I had his support, it, it didn't make it as ominous. You know, I didn't I didn't have to come up with all the money with, that people usually have to come up with because yeah. my rent was doing some work for him. And when I started, by the time I started it officially on my own, I think I... I probably had when I started when I started my own firm with him I had 14 cases of my own that I had brought in that were active cases and then I think by the time that I left him I probably had 25 or 30 cases and that was like within a year and a half That's after great. working with him so by the time I did it I I felt ready because I was running these cases and because of the way his office was set up even when I was working for him I was really doing the cases myself so I felt like I had a trial run so it's nice to have ready. someone supportive like that because I, in New Jersey and I'm sure it's not different here a lot of times when an associate feels ready to make that jump the the partner or you know the the owner is not usually very happy about that so it's nice that you had someone who was supportive and encouraged you to do that. It really was. It made a huge difference. I'm actually still in touch with him now. Um, his brother actually just referred me a case. That's great. <laughs> that I met with today. So, uh, yeah, I was very lucky that so way. So how did you go about drumming up business when you were a young attorney like that? It's interesting because at the time... I really think that most of the business was just coming from friends and family, like people who knew. I mean, I I wasn't doing, I never heard of networking. There was no advertising. It was just people knew I was an attorney, and it was really friends and family, those those first cases. Um, And then I joined, I became a partner with my, uh, a friend of mine from from college who was now a lawyer. 
who I told you I had spoken to him about getting samples. So he became my partner. So both of us, through our friends and family and people we knew, that's how we got cases. And then word of mouth from other clients once we had clients. So he was your partner when you first left the, the solo guy? Not immediately, but after a year. Like, we had talked about it, but he wasn't ready. He was already married, and he wasn't ready to leave the firm. But once the firm actually started making money, then he joined me. And are you still partners? No. We were partners for 17 years. That's and a long then, time. And then Longer in, than a lot of marriages. <laughs> yeah. And then in 2012, I uh, started this firm. So we've had this firm now for seven, almost eight years. Do you feel like... Was that a good situation for you being a partner? Do you feel you're sort of like a, you know, you prefer to fly solo? Well, when we first started the partnership, we were both working in this in Manhattan. Okay. And we did everything together. And then once I got married and had children, I got an office on Long Island. We had like, we called it a satellite office that I would really just use to meet clients because I was really home with my kids when they were little. And we kind of became two separate firms because he was in the city, I was on Long Island. He had the clients that just knew him. I had the clients that just knew me. And by the time we broke up the firm, it just, it just we were really sense. two separate firms. It really didn't make sense for us to be together. So so it's it was an amicable breakup. How long have you had the solo firm now? Since 2012. So Okay. So it's been a hot minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What would you say your experience has been like being a real solo? Well, I'm not really a solo because I have a staff. So sol- my definition of a solo is a, a person who's running the firm and they're all by themselves. I started off that way in 2012. I started off as a solo again, really working from my basement and kind of rebuilt, rebranding myself because I was no longer the partnership. By that time, during the partnership, I had started networking and becoming part of networking groups. And when I started again in 2012, by that point I had stopped networking for a while because we were so busy and I felt that I didn't have time. But when I started my own firm, I had to get out there. People had to know I was a a new firm. You had to hustle. Yeah, I did a lot of different things. So going back to your question of how did I get business, this time I really did work it to get business. I joined a networking group which I had known of, but I wasn't a part of yet. I also would do things like if people were having a golf outing, I would get, uh, I would sponsor a tea sign or something that wasn't that expensive. It might have been $100 or $150, and it just had my name on it. And it wasn't so much to get direct business, but to get name recognition out there. So if someone referred someone to me, they'd say, wait, I think I heard of her because they saw my name someplace. So I did a lot of journal ads, a lot of golf outings, a lot of schools sponsorship type things just to get my name out there and then the networking was just really meeting people one-on-one and getting having them get to know me and I'd say I get probably about 90% of my business from that still today. Did you get any kind of coaching or did you like business coaching or did you just sort of figure this out on your own? I did. I read a lot of business books. So I started off, like I said, in my basement in 2012. By 2014, I had three employees. By 2017, I had eight. Right now, there's 11 of us. So we That have, sounds fast. Yeah, it was pretty fast. Who did you have to hire first? The first person I hired was someone who was working with me as an intern. She was going to, she was pre-law in college. She worked with me as an intern. And then after I broke up the firm, I hired her part-time just as like a legal assistant. She's now my office manager. She's been my office manager since forever. I think I, shortly after she became my legal assistant, she became my office manager once we hired one more person after her. Um, her name is Kim, and she's now going to law school. She has one year left That's of law wonderful. school. That's wonderful. She still works here full-time, goes to school at night. That's and, great. Uh, she'll be amazing because she's been doing all of this stuff. So, so did you so. realize at some point, because I talk about this a lot, that when as lawyers we practice law, but then at some point, especially if you have your own firm, you sort of realize that I'm not just being a lawyer now. I'm really running a business, and well, they're really two different things. That's exactly right. After about three years of having the business that we were growing, but I felt that we had a lot of employees. There were a lot of us. I think by that time there were two attorneys. I think there were three attorneys by that point, um, and maybe the rest were support staff, so maybe it was like five or six support staff. And I felt like we had a lot of people, but I felt like we weren't efficient. 
So I thought the next level was to get a business coach, which I did. I'm somebody I knew from networking who now is working as a coach and I didn't know. And he gave me like two or three suggestions during our little one-on-one networking meeting that I was like, oh, maybe I should hire this guy. And I did. And he really helped get our business to the next level just by putting processes in place. He recommended a number of books for me to read. Do you remember what any of them were? I know all of them. (laughs) I'd love to hear it. Well, the first book was The E-Myth. E stands for Entrepreneur. And it was a great book. It was about a business that starts with one person and how it grows and how to put processes in place. And it's an amazing book. Um, And it helped me figure out, we had some of the things that we were already doing, because clearly we were successful, we were going well, but we didn't have the processes in place to make it even more efficient, which is what we needed. And the E-Myth taught us how to put processes in place so that our clients would have the same experience every time. And if we needed to hire somebody else because somebody left unexpectedly, we already had processes in place so that they can we can drop somebody right out, right into that spot. We have processes. We actually have two binders now of every single process we can do from answering the phone to filing paperwork and the legal action to discovery to you name it, to filing, everything. And that was one of the first things that I was advised to do when I got business coaching, but it's amazing how many small businesses don't have things like that. So many don't do that. And it's, it's really helped a lot. So it got us to the next level. And then The book that I read after that, well, I read a bunch of books. There was another book called How to Be a Power Connector, which was all about networking by someone named Judy Robinette. The first book, The E-Myth, is, uh, I can't remember who the author is. I've heard of that one. If you Google it, it's on Amazon, and you can get that one. The second one, How to Be a Power Connector by Judy Robinette, is a great book, too. It's just about how to get to that next level. So one of the things I learned from that for example, for me, with the with the divorces, the contested divorces are very expensive because people are paying us by the hour. Yeah. So when I first started, I felt bad for everybody. So if they ran yeah. out of money, I just kept representing yeah. them. But did it make sense? Because That's a common I, affliction. <laughs> yeah. So the Judy Robinette book said that if you need people that are making more money, higher net, net worth people, you have to network with people that are at a higher level than where you are. You have to get into a different room. And I started doing that. I started seeing, like, who did I need to meet? How did you do that? Well, in the one networking group I was in called ABA, I'm still in that group, they would do exercises on how to network. And one of the things they said was, who are all your referral sources? You had to write them all down. So I was like, Craig, Amy, you know, Pat. I wrote all them down. They said, okay, well, who are all these people? What category of business are they? I said, well, they're all lawyers. And I'm like, no, what kind of lawyers? Every single one of them was a trust and estates attorney. Really? I didn't even make the connection until they said that. And they were sending you the higher net worth clients? They were sending me the divorce clients because trust and estates attorneys have a long-term relationship with their clients, whereas what I do is transactional. So when I'm done representing someone for a divorce or a medical malpractice or a personal injury, once their case is over... It's over. Yeah. Trust in well, estates some attorneys. Of them. <laughs> well, they might come back for yeah. other things, but that yeah. one part of it's over. Trust in estates attorney, they have a constant, continuous relationship with their clients because their plans are changing and they're doing things. So when they have a situation, they'll talk to their trusted estates attorney for an, ask them for an attorney. So that's why that, that makes refer- sense. So when I wanted to get into the different room, I realized I needed to not have the trust and state attorneys in small firms. I needed the ones in bigger firms because they usually had higher net worth clients. And once I started doing that, I started getting the higher net worth clients and the people who were able to um, afford to pay those higher fees because of the length of the, of the duration of the case, not so much for my hourly rate, but for the duration of the case. And, and that's what I did, and that made a big difference as well. Did you find you had to do other things, like maybe increase your initial retainer? No, it wasn't so much increasing. It wasn't so much that people didn't come up with the initial retainer. It was more that they ran out of money because of how long the... Yeah. Because the parties weren't agreeing. So my retainer was always dependent on what work needed to be done. So I would already take a larger retainer if I knew, for example, the trial was coming up because the case had already progressed as opposed to a case that I might just be starting with a divorce that might settle amicably. So the retainer was never just a set retainer in in a cookie cutter type of way. It was always based on what 
the work entailed would be. So what were there some other books? Yes. So that was How to Be a Power Connector. The next book that I read that was life-changing for my firm is a book called Traction. Traction is by someone named Gino Wickman, and it's about when you your business has already gotten to a certain level, so you've already reached some success, and they say in the book you should have at least 10 employees if you're going to use that book, how to get it to the next level. And it talks about establishing core values for your company, and then you hire and fire based on those core values. And it was it changed my firm. I still use the process now. I talk to people about it all the time. It's just the greatest book. Can you just and describe it? So the book starts off with it has a checklist of all items. I believe there's maybe 25 things on the checklist of if your company is doing these things. And they have you assign a percentage after you answer it. Some of the things are you're not going to have because they're things that the book tells you to do, such as the core values. And when we started off, we were at 24%. They said once you get to 80%, and we do the, every time we would have a meeting, we would check. Once you get to 80%, your firm's doing amazing. They have you establish something called a leadership team in your company. And the leadership team will be, it doesn't have to just be management. It could be three or four people that are people that could have different perspectives about your firm, but you're going to meet once a week and discuss the issues of your firm. They have you identify the issues, then you discuss them, and then you solve them. They have you do things like, um, they call it rocks or to-dos. A rock is something that's going to take 90 days to accomplish. A to-do is something that's seven days to accomplish. So and every week you're going over that. And then you also have weekly staff meetings. But the first thing you do is establish the core values. The core values, so your first meetings with your leadership team meeting, uh, your leadership team is doing all the things that the book tells you to do as far as establishing core values, identifying what, uh, if you have the right people in the right seats, they call it, so you can make sure people are doing the jobs that they're good at. And it's just, I can go on and on all day. About I, well, I love listening to this stuff. Thank you for sharing. So who was on your leadership team? Is it everybody or is it just certain no, people in the was, firm? Uh, in the beginning, it was just my office manager, Kim, that I talked to you about. This other person, Ronnie, who was the person who would do our billing for us, or our outgoing bills, and then eventually added another attorney who had worked as a managing attorney at another firm, so she was a good fit. And it was all those different perspectives, and that's still my leadership team today. The, they have you have one person has to be the visionary, one person is the integrator. The visionary is usually the owner of the company. So I'm the visionary. I could say, here's all the things that I would love to do with the firm. And the integrator is the person who keeps you on task at the meeting. So I can go on and on, just like I'm doing right yeah. now, about how amazing everything's going to be. And she'll say, okay, well, the next thing on our agenda is. <laughs> well, I think that's great track. because I, I, even myself as a business owner, and I know I've talked to so many other people that have the same issue, is you'll get all these wonderful ideas, and then they sort of stop there, you know? Right. The I mean, it helps with that. It's it's kind of terrible sometimes to find a to do list that I did a year ago. Well, depending on how it turned out, and and it's like, did I do any of those things? It's really depressing when you look back and you're like, how come I didn't do any of those things? There's such great ideas. What's nice is when you find you did do some of the yeah. things, but. I think that's important to have the executor, the person, or was that integrator. the word integrator? Yeah. Someone who's actually going to execute or integrate your vision. Or execute you if you do not integrate. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or say, hey, you know, why isn't this done? Right? Yeah. So that was a great book, too. So I, I've read so many books. I've um, listened to a lot of podcasts. We're always trying to get to the next level, but mostly... The goal is to be efficient and to do the work efficiently. So, And are you still good. practicing law full-time? Absolutely. So how the heck do you find time for all of this? Well, I think that there's all different ways. Like, First of all, everything gets calendared in, what we're doing. The podcast, for example, I, or, the e, or the TED Talks, or whatever I listen to, I listen to that in the morning while I'm putting my makeup on. So I'm doing that. I could do that while I'm in my car and listening to those things. The books I read on the weekends and before I go to sleep at night. The, and the work is being done during the week. The um, leadership team meetings we have, they're scheduled in on our calendar as well as the staff meetings. And the 
staff loves the staff meetings. Like they, they all feel that they have a voice. We talk about all different issues. Everybody feels part of what we're doing. And the way that they organize the meetings, they give you a specific way to do it. And I'll just give you an example is every meeting, both leadership team and staff meeting starts off with a segue, which everybody goes around the room and says one positive personal thing and one positive business thing that's happening. It's just like a minute. That. But you'd be surprised what you get to learn about the other people that you're working with, which you wouldn't know when you're just doing your work about that one positive personal thing. We found, we've learned so much about each other because we found out what people did on the weekend or what's coming up. Or Well, I, uh, I will say that there's a very positive feeling, that energy that you feel when you walk in here. Oh, it's not you. like, oh, it's work. You know, it's, it, you don't feel that vibe when you walk yeah. in. Everybody's happy. I think everybody happy. loves being here. And it's because we have these meetings and we're able to say, okay, what suggestions do you have? Or how can we do this better? Or how do you feel about this? We've changed a lot of, things, added a lot of processes, taken away certain things based on all of these meetings. So. Did you, have you found that over the years as your firm has grown that you have like different problems? Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything changes. We always laugh because when we started, when we were working in my basement, I used to have everything that had to be filed on this ping pong table in my basement. And when Kim started working, the first four months, all she did was take the things from the ping pong table, figure out where to file them, and organize all of that. And then when we were in an office, there would be, instead of the ping pong table, there would be a pile. And it was all the stuff I had to do. And it just, we would call it the pile. There'd be a pile on my desk for, of things for me to review. And then I had this ugly green bag that I used to put the pile in. And I would take it home and work on it at home. And then one day we said, why don't, what if we made... Like, instead of just organizing the pile in smaller piles, what if we had, like, these bins that we labeled, like, letters, discovery, things to be signed? And we're like, wow, what an idea. And we started making these bins. And all of a sudden, it got more organized. So, And we're always drilling it down to get it even more organized to make sure that there's the people are working on things that not only they're good at, but that they enjoy doing. So it, it helps. What would you say to the people that are listening and are saying, how on earth is she doing all those staff meetings? I, don't, I barely have time to brush my teeth. How do you make time for that? Well, the staff meetings always during lunch. And we pick it on one day a week. And on that day, I order lunch in for everybody. So that's a fun thing to do. And it's scheduled in. So we know once a week, that's when we're doing that meeting. So if you know that you're having the meeting and you put it on your calendar... It happens, and it, it doesn't become a task. It becomes just like any other meeting Habit. that you schedule. You're going to do it. And because we're getting such good results, because we learn things, we find things out, one of the things they have you do at the end of every meeting is rate the meeting. You know, how was it? And in the beginning, we would say, well, you know, people would give it an eight because it took too long or felt like we went off on a tangent or we didn't get anything accomplished. I'd say for the last six months, they're always rated at a 10 because people are amazed at how much we get accomplished and what issues we resolved that we didn't think that we were going to resolve or that we didn't even know were, was an issue until it was brought up. So uh, It sounds so like you're really, really good, good at getting everyone engaged, which I, don't, which I have found is not always easy in my practice. Well, I think that the main thing that happened is once they had traction, had us establish our core values and we started hiring and firing around our core values, it became a lot easier. So my core values for the firm are we have a mnemonic for it, which is PACE GG. It's pride in work, ability to adjust or adapt, confident, um, enthusiastic, energetic, great with clients, wow experience, and growth oriented. So that, that's our core values. So enthusiastic, energetic is a big one. When we're hiring people, we look to see what they're like. And, and we've interviewed people that in the interview, we can see that they're just really negative, that yeah. they complained a lot even just in the interview. And we said, okay, it's not going to be a good fit because it's a hard job what we're doing. You have to, all those other things are important. You have to be able to pay attention to detail. You have to concentrate. You have to be focused. But you also have to be a nice, fun enthusiastic person because we all like to laugh too yeah so it's really so we've hired like that that's what everybody's like so when we have these lunch meetings it's fun 
it's enjoyable hearing what everybody's doing. We joke around, you know, this person whose life sounds so exciting. I don't want to go after her because <laughs> then my thing's going to sound boring or whatever it is. And it, it does make... It's like a bonding moment. Absolutely. It makes the place more, uh, the workplace more enjoyable. So do you have a process that you follow for your hiring? Yes, we do have a process for hiring. Um, and it's different depending on who we're hiring. So it's a different process for attorneys. Well, some parts of it are different. So when we're hiring support staff, for example, paralegals and legal assistants, the first interviews are not done by me. They're done by Kim and Ronnie, Kim, my office manager, and Ronnie, who's my, um, I always forget what her title is because we've changed it, but she's like a... Uh, an admin? No, she's not. She's more than that because she does account operations manager. Okay. I always forget. She's going to kill me when she hears this. But <laughs> you want me to edit this part yeah, out? No. <laughs> so, so they do the first interviews because right from the first interviews, they can tell there's certain people that aren't going to work out. If the person gets to a second interview and they like them, then what they do is um, they do have them come in for a second. In, well, before the second interview. If we like them, I'm sorry, after the first interview, I'm just remembering the process as I'm thinking it through, we send them an email with some questions we'd like them to answer. And if the, that part goes well, we like the answers that they gave us, then we bring them in for a second interview. And at that point, I would meet them at the second interview. So, And that has made the process much better because I'm not spending my time in the first interview for someone that clearly isn't going to work out. Betting, yeah. When I get the, to see the answers to the questions on the email, I have an idea of what their personality is like and who they are. And then the second interview is really just finalizing the deal. What are the questions you ask them in the email? Are they always the same or do you tailor them to the person? They're always the same. Um, some of the questions, for example, is our work has to go out perfect. You know, one mistake in an address or one mistake in a number could have devastating consequences for our clients. So one of the things that we tell them is that there's a lot of supervision, that your work is going to be checked even if you've been working for years and you have experience, there's a lot of oversight, and how do you feel about that? Because some people are comfortable with it and some people aren't. So yeah. that's a, and people are, are brutally honest. They are answers. honest. They That's really good. are. We've had people, one person wrote, I have no problem with it as long as I agree with the person who's supervising me. <laughs> so, Was so, that in jest? No, no. He was serious. I he guess he serious. didn't get hired. Yeah, no, no. And he asked why he didn't. And we, he gave an example of uh, something that he did where he disagreed with his boss, but he held his ground because he knew that he was right. And uh, so hmm. we... You know, we talked to him about it. We let him know the reason why he wasn't a fit for us and, and what we thought about that, because we thought he should know. What are some of the other questions? Um, we asked them what they like to do in their, in their free time. We asked them what kind of books they like to read. We asked them to tell us about a, a, an example of something that they did in, in their work life that they were proud of, how they handled it. They, we asked them of something that they would like to see in a job for themselves, what they're looking for. So we, there's probably about seven or eight questions. Do you have any philosophy about when it comes time to fire someone? When it comes time to fire someone? When do, um, how do you recognize when it's time? Well, actually, through the book Traction, they, they give you a, a way to do it. So basically, we, they have you do employee reviews every month. And they give you a form. That oh, monthly. Kind of, and the, the review is basically based on your core values. So how are they doing? Do they have pride in work? Pride in work means are they checking their work and making sure that it's done correctly? Ability to adjust or adapt. When you're working in a law firm, you could be working on one thing and another emergency can come up. And you've got to have to put that aside and start working on the new emergency. And you can't be like, no, I was already working on this. and I'm not going to do it. So that's the ability to adjust or adapt. If we have an employee that, for example, is constantly making errors, and we look at errors that affect the client, but first it starts off with errors that we're seeing because we're supervising the work, and we bring it to their attention, and they're not getting better. So they're not fixing it. They're not trying to do better. We, If it's at three reviews and it hasn't approved, and we let them know at the first review, okay, that it has to be better by the second review. And the second review, we say if it's not better by the third review, 
this is not working out and we're going to end our relationship. So they usually know it's coming. And by the third review, if it's not working out, it's usually pretty mutual because they would have known because we would have been yeah. discussing it and that it's not a right fit for them. And sometimes there's situations where something just happens where somebody can't work here anymore and it could and that happens at any company so in that situation i think it's more clear-cut something just yeah. happens but the person who's very nice who's just not doing a good job that's harder and because we do the employee reviews and because we're constantly speaking with them about it it makes it easier because it's not a surprise and it also makes it easier for for us as the employer us meaning me because i'm making sure that i gave that person a chance instead of maybe making a snap decision yeah, and maybe I was too rash in my judgment. By the time we get to the third review, if it's still, it's still happening, it's pretty clear that it's not going to change. Whatever the issue is, I know from talking to my friends and colleagues who have businesses, that's a hard one is to recognize when it's time to ask them to leave. Because you're right, it's not like one thing happens unless it's something really monumental. But it's not like one thing happens and then you're ready to fire them the next day. It's usually been things that have been going on for some time. And I'm, actually, I really love your idea of having the monthly reviews because you kind of get to this point, at least I do, where I'm like, okay, I've talked about this a handful of times. How many times do I just keep talking about right. it? And then, you know, sometimes you feel a little guilty, like, oh, well, this person the, is a single mom, you know? Absolutely. And the monthly reviews, because they're, because they give you a form, and one of the things that you do is you fill out, um, you, there's a part, a comment section. So we'll usually talk about it, and I'll write down whatever the comments are. We both sign it. So when we get to the next month, if there was an issue, we say, okay, last month we spoke about whatever. It's in writing. Yeah. You know, and, but it looks like this still hasn't improved and let's discuss it. And they'll say, you know, yeah, I'll try. Yeah. Or whatever they're going to say, you know, I like I it. I'm going to start implementing that. Yeah. It's a good one. What are, as a business owner, what are some of the things you really love to do? And then what are some of the things you like least about having a business? Hmm. That's a really tough question. Uh, I think the thing I like least is I do feel that I don't have enough time to do everything that I would like to do. Uh, and that the answer is always having always hiring more people that helps and that's always a tough decision that I think that's the toughest decision to make about do we hire or do we not hire because of course when you hire it costs more money so it changes your profitability and but usually whenever we do hire it's the right decision because once we hire people, we're, all, we're able to take on more business. So, But I think that's the hardest part is finding the time and, and figuring out what you want to do. What I love doing, I love being out there and networking and business development. I love going to court. I enjoy it. I love meeting with the clients. The parts that I don't like as much is, you know, the, I guess, more the humdrum parts of the business, the maybe the paperwork or... Um, or that type. I really like, I like being out there. Like I'm in my element when I'm out there. We were, I was in court all day yesterday and all day, I don't even know what day it is. Today's Friday. Yes, it's all Friday. Day, all day Wednesday and all day Thursday and came, you know, ended both days feeling really energized because this is what I, what I like doing. Or uh, are you at a level where you can pass off some of the work that you don't enjoy as much to an associate or somebody else in the firm? Well, there's a lot of work that the other attorneys in the firm do, what I would call more of the back office work. So for example, one of the things we do in a divorce is a stipulation of settlement. The first draft is not done by me. The first draft is done by one of the other attorneys. I'll be reviewing it before it's finalized, but they'll do that. If there's any uh, motions or other legal paperwork, all that's done by the other attorneys, but all the attorneys go to court also. Um, so they're all attorneys in their own right that they're, they're able to go to court and handle cases as well. So we'll how many, well, tell our audience what staff you have. So we have four attorneys. I'm the fourth attorney. So that's including me. We have a receptionist. We have th three legal assistants. We have one nurse paralegal who her job is just reviewing medical records on the medical malpractice and personal injury cases. We have um, my office manager, Kim, that I mentioned, is also a matrimonial paralegal and matrimonial slash personal injury. She does both. Ronnie, the one I said who does the operations, she's also a real estate paralegal, so she handles, we do residential real estate closings as well. 
and the attorneys, uh, Nicole and Brianna, just do family law, like I and I do. I do all the practice areas, of course. And then Kathy is an attorney who just does medical malpractice. And do you like it. the family law the best? I like all of the areas for different reasons. I think that if I only did family law, I would get burnt out from it because yeah, it's I a can very tough area. I love the medical malpractice because I'm interested in the medicine. So even though I didn't like the way the hospital smelled, I, I love the intellectual challenge of understanding the medicine. I have an aptitude for it. I find it very interesting, and I, I like doing those cases. The family law, I is everybody's very emotional no matter what happened. In a medical malpractice case, something happened where maybe somebody died or, or there was some type of terrible injury, and that's emotional. The family law and matrimonial cases, and I'm family law is any case where people weren't married, but there's issues of custody or child support visitation, matrimonial are the cases where they were married, but you, you have those same issues except for now they're getting divorced. There's nothing more emotional than your money or your children. You know, it's very, very emotional. And to be able to help people through that time and get them to the other side where that door is closed and they're able to move on with their peaceful life is extremely rewarding. So I love that also. So I really, it's very hard for me to say what I like the best. I like all the areas, even the residential real estate closings. If, if someone's buying a house for the first time and they're putting all of their money into this one investment, that's stressful. It's emotional. Yeah. And if someone's selling their house that they lived in for 40 years, that's emotional also. That's a part of their life that they're leaving behind. So I, I love all of it. It sounds like by having all those different practice areas that you, you don't really give yourself an opportunity to get bored with anything. I don't. I love what I do. And really, they're all intertwined. We've had clients that we represented for a divorce that I end up doing their real estate closing, and then a family member gets in a car accident, so they let me know about that. So there's all different things um, that we can help our clients with. They're able to come back to us. Well, we develop very strong relationships with our clients, and we really just enjoy it because of that. What areas do you service in New York, just for anybody who might want to send you a referral? So we're in on Long Island, Nassau and Suffolk County, and then we're also in the city, so Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. We don't really do anything in Staten Island. And we're also in Westchester County, which okay. is White Plains, upstate New York. I'll keep that in mind. Thank you. Now, the person who introduced us, which he's going to kill me if he listens to this, I think his name is Adam. Adam I'd, Wood. Yes, okay. I'd only had spoken to him once. Yes. He introduced me to you because we talked about how, in my practice, we're trying to do things sort of out of the box, you know, not maybe revolutionize the way we bill. Cause I think clients are getting kind of tired of the billable hour. And I think attorneys are getting a little tired of the billable hour too. And he said that you had some interesting things that you're doing to, to do that as well. Can he you share that? He was talking about the book traction because oh. I talk about traction all the time. So I know that's what he was talking about. There's all different things that attorneys do depending on the practice area. Some people are moving towards a flat rate uh, model but I think that depends on what you're doing. It doesn't work for every model. Like I couldn't do it on a contested divorce because you have no idea how long it's going to last, so it's hard to do that. But the, those two books, The E-Myth and Traction, really help you get processes into place. I'm going to buy it on and, the way home. <laughs> and, uh, and the other thing is is that both there are people called implementers that help you put the traction process into place. And for E-Myth, there are coaches through Emith that help you put processes in place so you don't have to go it alone. And it's just, there's so much, there's so many business books that I've read and I have a very long list. Maybe of you can give me read. a list. Maybe you can email me a I list. I will give you a list. But those, the ones I mentioned are the most important ones. And I actually just recently wrote a chapter in a book called Running Your Own Business. And the chapter is about um, sustainable business growth to through networking, through business develop, uh, through relationship building, and the that chapter that I that chapter okay. I just, just continue over my on. microphone. <laughs> the chapter that I wrote about is talks about business development through networking, through networking groups, but also putting processes into place. And I list all the books that I talked about. 
Oh, good. Because so I want to see. I love to read. I have. I'll give a, you a copy of my book before you leave. Thank you. So I would so love you that. that. I would love that. Thank you. Um, so can you share with us some of the things that you've experimented with in terms of billing? I think one of the things Adam told me about, unless I'm confusing you with somebody else, he said you weren't billing for phone calls. Yes. So Which is th- pretty bold. A lot yeah. of people are probably like, what? She's not billing for phone calls. So what I did was when I first started doing divorces, I didn't think that it was right to bill people for phone calls and later on emails and text messages. And the reason was because they're calling because they're so emotional about whatever emergency was they were calling about. And I was still making money by billing them for the actual work that we did. So what I would say is that I I don't bill you for phone calls, emails, or text messages. I just bill you for my real time doing work on your case. And the clients really appreciated that because the relationship is what was important to me. If I if the client can call me and I really understood what was happening and they didn't feel like they were on the clock every time they picked up the phone, I could have a different relationship with them. And I really had a clear understanding of what was going on. And I found that no one abused it. They really just called. Yeah, and that was my question. Every phone call was maybe five minutes or ten minutes. I did bill them if the phone call was longer than half an hour. I, I do bill them if the phone call is longer than half an hour because then they probably needed to come in. And they're fine with that because most of the times when they call, it's five or ten minutes to say, here's what's happening right now. I just wanted to let you know. And they know that if they need to stay on the phone longer with me, they just couldn't get to the office. And they're fine with me billing them after the first half an hour. It rarely happens because most of the call, phone calls are short. But uh, but that's something that I did, and the client feels good about it because they feel like they're not getting nickel and dimed. Yes. And I feel good about it because I let, they know that they can get in touch with me. They can text me. I give them my cell phone number so they can text me if there's an emergency. We've had people that things happened at 11 o'clock at night which I don't always look at my phone at that time of the night, but if I know that there's something going on with a particular client, if there's a situation concerning abuse or, or, or neglect by another parent, and I know that they're going to need me, I'll definitely look at my phone to make sure that they're okay. And this is your actual personal cell phone, or do you have like a bat phone? This is my, <laughs> my actual personal cell phone. Wow, you I I admire you. <laughs> You're a brave lady. I had to I stopped giving people my cell phone because I just felt like it was abused. Well, I don't feel like it's abused with in my situation. I think that um because you can text now, it's different than yeah. people just calling you. Most of it's texting, so you really can monitor what you're going to respond to immediately and what you're not going to respond to. The other thing I do, and this really mostly happens in the family law area, but the other thing I do is because we have three of us, um, the clients are all told to email us in a group email and text us in a group text, and whoever is available is the one that responds. So if I'm in court, for example, doing a trial or just if I'm in court in front of a judge, I'm not going to be able to answer to that client uh, right away, but Nicole or Brianna who also got the text might be able to respond to them. And because we're in a group text, and this was one of the things you were asking, how do I do everything? One of the things that we did was this team approach because what we found is the client wants it done right and they want it done it they want it done fast. And yes, they do. They don't want to hear Sandra will get back to you a week from Tuesday. So if they're in a group text with us or a group email or they call the office and they know that Nicole and Brianna are up to speed on their case just like I am and they're not having to start from scratch to explain what was going on, it all works out. And so they're always getting an immediate response. They always know what's going on. And that was something that grew out of the team meetings to figure out like what's a better way for us to do it. And we came up with this team approach and our clients love it. I they like it. it. Yeah. I'm going to talk to my partner about it. Yeah. Did you say you wrote a chapter in someone else's book or you yes. have your own book on no, these no, things? No, no, I wrote a chapter in, in another book called Running Your Own Business. My chapter was just on um, sustainable business development through relationship building. Well, you might want to write your own book, Sandra. On business, on running yes. business? Yes, specifically But all I do lawyers. is talk about other people's books. <laughs> but maybe well, I will. Maybe I mean, I will. it all comes together, right? Yeah, There's not I one will. book that solves every problem. So you've mentioned a few times you're, that you're the visionary. Yes. What would you say right now as we're sitting here, what's your vision now for your firm? My vision is for the firm to keep growing. My next step is... I think um, growth through acquisition, looking for 
maybe people who are ready to retire, really in the area of family law, or maybe someone who started their own business and felt that it was too overwhelming for them, and maybe acquiring their businesses to grow my business that way. So that's our that's our next step. Okay, really so if anyone's there. listening and you fit yeah. into that category, maybe you should give Sandra a call. I like to end every interview with a series of questions. What's the best business advice that you ever got? Actually, the best business the best business advice. I think it's stay true to yourself. Don't change your personality for your business. You could only run your business the way you would run your business based on your morals, your values, your vision, and, and your way of doing things. So if you're someone who likes to have fun at work, then you should do that. And if you're someone that wants it to be all casual as far as the way everybody dressed, you should do that. And if you want it to be formal, you should do that. And if you want things to go a certain way when you have your business, you have to have the confidence to have that vision go all the way, go all the way through. And, and I think that that's very good advice. Just be you. Just be you. I like that. What's the best life advice you ever got? The best life advice I ever got was um, really to know what it is that you want to do. I guess this is business advice also. Envision that and then go for it without thinking about how you're going to get there. So I'll give you one example is that my husband, before we got married, went to Greece five times. And all he ever wanted to do was take me to Greece. But when we got married, I said, I want to go someplace different. So he went to Venice for our honeymoon. And for 20 years, we talked about going to Greece, and we never went. And someone gave me that advice. Just if you, that's what you want to do, you just got to do it. So um, Don't be afraid. So I said to my husband, we're going to go to Greece. And we saved, we put the money aside, because what are your excuses? Oh, we can't afford it, or we don't have time. My office planned for a year for me to be away because we knew I was going away and I was not going to be on the phone with the office when I went away. And we just took that trip to Greece. Where'd you go? Last September. We went to Naxos, Santorini, and Athens. I was in Santorini. I loved it. It's gorgeous. It was wonderful. And it was really, it was great. So that was the best advice that if you really want to do something, just picture what you want to do, write it down. And go for it. I have a list of things that I'm going to do in 2020. I mean, can you share a couple things? What were the things that I? What can I share? Well, one of the things is I'm I'm we're thinking of downsizing. Both of my children are in college now, and my mother-in-law, who lived, my in-laws lived with us for 13 years, and they both passed away. My mother-in-law just passed away in December, and we are ready to move to a smaller house. So our goal was to sell our house and to find a perfect house. So now we just listed our house for sale and we're in the process of looking for another house and I'm confident that we'll have that done this year. So that's one of my goals for 2020. What about a vacation house somewhere? Is that on your list by any chance? No, not on my list. We're homebodies. We like where we are. I wouldn't want a vacation house because I like going different places. So I wouldn't want to go to the same place all the time. But yeah. What person do you most admire and why? I'm going to have to be very cliche and go with my mother. Everyone does. <laughs> Mom or dad but, or both. Yeah, I mean, really both, but I, my father's passed away, so I'm going to go with my mother. Uh, my mother's just a, she's a very, she sees the good in everybody. And really, that's enabled me to see the good in everybody. And I actually see my kids doing the same way. My husband's very similar. And my mother-in-law was very much the same way, too. And it makes everything good. Like, my I don't even know the last time we we talk about we hear about families that fight all the time. I can't even I can't even recall a fight with my mother. Like, wow! You know, even when even, you were fifteen. <laughs> no, I was a very fresh kid. I always say, but I don't recall fighting. I recall being fresh and her telling me not to be fresh and me rolling my eyes. But I'm saying as an adult yeah. more because I I tend to block out whatever negative happens. So I really I probably did have fights with her as a teenager. That's a I'm great sure. quality. But um. <laughs> But just really, she sees the good in people. When when I was a kid, if somebody was rude to us, and she'd say, well, you don't know what's going on in their life. You know, that there's that is a reason true. why people are like that. So she never got mad at anybody. And, and I, that's enabled me, when we have a client that comes in that maybe isn't the friendliest person or whatever, we'll, you know, we'll say they're going through a lot. I actually had somebody working here that... She hung up with uh, somebody, and she said, well, that woman wasn't very friendly. I said, let me tell you about that woman. Her son, we represented her for a medical malpractice case, and her son at the age of 16 
died suddenly because of something that happened in medical malpractice. And then her husband, who was a sole wage earner, was working, walking their door, dog and got hit by a car and wasn't able to work. And he was the one that was working for the house. And then her mother, the next year, got hit by a car right in front of her and died. And I said, That's so incredible. do you think that she should walk around sounding happy? And they were like, no. I said, she has yeah. a lot of sadness in her life. And the people who work here have to know that every person who calls here is calling us because something bad happened in their life. That's why they need us. We're here to help them. We're the problem solvers. So getting back to my mother, yeah. her saying something's going on in somebody's life enabled me to always look at it that way. So I never get defensive. If I, I feel like somebody's being rude, I'm like, oh, they must they must have something going on. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah, I try to do that. I, I'm not always successful, but I'm getting better. So. Well, I think that it's normal to get angry. Your first reaction is to get angry. But then when you your second reaction is to say, it probably has nothing to do with me. Yeah. It has to do with however that person, whatever's going on in their life that made them that way, then you can get over it a lot quicker. Good advice. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? My 20-year-old self was struggling through organic chemistry. I would say, it's going to be okay. <laughs> Everything's going to work out just fine. I've heard that story a lot. It was organic chem that turned people yep. away. Yeah, that's a killer. <laughs> it, it looks like everything worked out for you, though. Yes. What would you tell other women who are thinking of starting their own law firm but are afraid? I'd say talk to somebody who's done it already. Do your research. And it's one client at a time. And you'll do it. You just be yourself and it's all good. Thank you. You're welcome. This was fun. Thank you for having me on this. This was great.